We're going to continue on with our series, Alive to Thrive, Pulling Out of Survival Mode. Now, here's a reality check. We can all go through a very difficult time. We can feel so overwhelmed by life circumstances that we want to just hunker down and we want to just survive. And I need to communicate to you from God's word that he, God's heart goes out to those who are in that position in which they're just hunkering down. They're just saying, God, please help me. Do, do you realize that throughout the church, throughout church history, that the church has, has managed to survive, but the church always comes out of survival mode because it has a purpose. It has a redemptive element in their culture, in every culture worldwide. The problem, though, in cultures like America, where Christianity has been around for several hundred years, and the culture is only permitted in its evil to increase more and more, that there is a numbing effect, that there is such an overwhelming wave of onslaught that Christians can kind of sit back and they're kind of just waiting. And you're familiar with the illustration of the proverbial frog in the water, right? And, and the frog goes into the water and he's just swimming around having a great time. And then the person does something really cool, cruel. Did I say cool? Really cruel. And he puts it on the stove, and very gradually, the water comes to a boil. And the frog will not jump out of the water because he's a cold-blooded creature, and his body acclimates to the temperature around it. It will eventually just boil to death. And the Christians can be this way. When we move into survival mode, we're just, we become shell-shocked. We become wearied, and we just want to hold on. And without realizing it, we have become inoculated, and we have become paralyzed by the things going on around us. One problem after another. You know, I've often wondered, how did Paul feel when he was going through all those circumstances that are listed in 2 Corinthians 11? 2 Corinthians 11 is his tribute to suffering. It's one incident after another. Four, he, he, Paul went through four shipwrecks. He was a day and a night in the open sea. He was persecuted by his countrymen. He was almost killed numerous times. It's possible that in Lystra he was stoned to death. We're not quite sure on that. But he was taken up as dead and God brought him back to life or just resuscitated. Whatever God did. But can you imagine Paul sitting in prison, jail, in the early 60s, he's in Rome for the first time, and he'd been looking forward to seeing the Romans. And how does he visit the Roman church? In prison, under house arrest. Can you only imagine how he's feeling? Can you only imagine just the sense of, God, where are you? I mean, I tried, I've tried so hard to serve you, and look where I'm at. But Paul has a completely different attitude because he knows this, that the gospel is not chained, though he is. And he is just constantly finding strength in God. When David was at Keilah and the Amalekites ransacked Keilah, excuse me, Ziklag, and he was away, his army, he and his army was away, and they burned the, the city, they took the women and children, they came back, and they were ready to kill David. You're, you're a horrible leader. 
And David, in that moment, could have just said, you know, God, I am weary from all of this running, constantly running from Saul. It's not worth it. Take me home, Jesus. And we can have this attitude. And God so understands it, church. The problem, though, is when we gain enough strength to move forward, we don't. We stay right where we are. Now, if you look back in Judges chapter 1, this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. They were trying to fight the iron chariots in the plains. They were trying to fight the the fortified walls, especially of Jerusalem, that wasn't just fortified, but it was up on a mountain. It was one problem after another. There were giants that Caleb had to deal with. One issue after another. God, come on, aren't you with us? But remember, God had said, I'm not going to let you take the land all at once. The problem, though, is over and over it says when they gained strength. Look there in verse 28. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, labor, but never drove them out completely. And this was the issue over and over again. And Israel slipped into survival mode. I want to ask the question today. When this happens... Is there a way out? We're going to begin to look at especially one particular way out. God is going to provide. But it is the major one that we're going to see. And I promise you that what we're going to discover this evening, God will do in your life. As a matter of fact, maybe he already has. But I want to challenge you. Respond to the word today. I believe this is a word for us as a church today. Pray with me if you would. Spirit of God, I pray that you would speak so clearly to our hearts tonight. Open our minds to understand your word. Open our hearts to receive it, obey it, and live it out. By your grace, God, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to pick up now in Judges chapter 2. We saw how Israel had slipped into survival mode. What is God's response? What is the way out? Well, let's look at it. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, so he's speaking to the people, the Israelites, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides. And their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites. The people wept aloud. And they called that place Bochim. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. First of all, when does this take place? Some theologians have speculated that it actually took place around the time of the Gibeonites, that when Israel made a treaty with the Gibeonites. I'm thinking that that's not the case, just in view of 
how this word comes and where it's positioned in the book of Judges. I would suggest to you that this is coming at a time in the very beginning of Judges in which the people have tried, but they've slipped into survival mode. They've already made the mistake once with the Gibeonites. Now it has become a pattern. Now it's become a habit. It's the way they deal with their issues. This is during a time in which they had gained sufficient strength. And we're going to talk about how God does that for us. God did it for them. God does that for us. And how do we take advantage of that? What do we do? But here, they made a treaty with the people in the land. The Canaanites, the Amorites. Instead of fighting against them like Jabez does, and therefore Jabez became honorable, more honorable than all of his brothers, he fought to see his land secured to, re to receive his full inheritance. Like Jabez, or unlike Jabez, they did not fight. You know, it's interesting that it says the angel of the Lord went from Gilgal to Bochim. Let's understand that Bochim is not the name until after all of this happens. So I can only imagine that there is a gathering of people. Maybe a prophet has called them. We don't know. But there must be a gathering of people. And the angel of the Lord goes from Gilgal, wherever Bochim is, wherever those people are gathered. What's the significance of this? Why does it talk about Gilgal? Now, I want you to write down Exodus 23 and Exodus 33. In Exodus 23, that is where God reveals to the, Moses, God reveals to the people through Moses that it, the, there is an angel of the Lord and he actually bears the name of God and therefore has authority. It is that angel that's going to lead the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and place the fear of God in the people and the fear of the Israelites in the, the hearts of the people of the land and he is going to go before them and secure victory for them. It is this angel that God says to Moses after Israel has sinned, you know what, I'm not going with you. I'm afraid that if I go with you, I'm going to destroy this people because they are so rebellious. I'm going to have my angel go into the promised land, but I am not. Which leads me to believe that I'm not convinced that that angel is a pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not convinced that that's the case because that would be Jesus, God himself. And Moses says, you know what? We want your presence to go with us. If you don't go with us, we really don't want to go in. But this angel then goes with Israel and fights with them. Now, we don't know if they could see this angel, but there is an angel that goes with them and fights the battles for them. God's hand is upon Israel. Gilgal, because that's where the Israelites' military headquarters were during all of those campaigns under Joshua. So here is what the author of Judges is saying. The very angel that fought for the Israelites to take the land 
that now he would be willing to fight for them, with them, to overcome the giants and the iron chariots and the fortresses and all of that, that very angel is now saying, I am not going to fight for you. God is not going with you because you have remained stubborn and you have not moved forward. You have not been courageous and full of faith like Jabez was. Now, of course, he doesn't say those exact words. You understand. And so the angel that was appointed by God to defeat the enemy now came to rebuke the people. Church, we can, we can slip into survival mode. I, I read a few, uh, uh, um, few uh, descriptions of it. I'm going to read a few more right now. Survival mode symptoms. They can be hanging on, keeping afloat, defensive, just constantly in maintenance mode. Here's another one. Sense of fear of failure or hurt. Really, God, again? We sacrificed so much only to get hurt again. We sacrificed so much to preach your gospel only to be persecuted again. What? We fought so hard. We thought for sure we had the giants this time, but we lost. No, we had to retreat. God, aren't you with us? Aren't you going to help us take the land? Remember, God said, little by little. But they start getting weary. There is this sense of failure that takes place in our hearts. We're wearied by it. There is a weariness, and that weariness creates a low faith and a small hope. It can. Our focus begins to turn inward and is more on ourself and less on others. It begins to look to pleasures, recreation, rather than God's mission, rather than God's call. I, I know some families, and as they were raising their children, they were so busy in life fighting battles, pastors even, so busy fighting battles that they ended up losing their children. That's a very real issue that they, they, they gave up. They, they just said, you know what? We're weary. And they stopped focusing on their children. And so many of them lost their children. And I want to tell you what, that is a heartache. We, we can have children that go astray, church, and we need to be praying for them. But don't give up. Never give up. Let me read a few more to you. There's a folk, we can be focused on a current problem. We can have no energy for anything else. We feel fatigued. We can't rest in Christ, it seems. We feel hopeless, defeated, weary. We become reactive, not proactive. We're on the defense rather than the offense. We're fearful with little or no faith. We're suspicious of others' motives. We begin to have a hoarding mentality, not a generous giving mentality. After a while, everything's a crisis. We become reactionary, emotional. There's a lack of joy, real joy and peace. It seems that the devil somehow snuck in the back door and robbed us of this joy, robbed us of our peace. See, this is more than just feeling weary, church, as we begin to settle into survival mode. 
change becomes unduly stressful. It's hard to be faithful. Trusting, we, we tend to trust in God more with our words than our actions. We're not relying on others for help or strength or accountability. We become lone rangers, turned inward rather than outward. God has hope for us. God for these people because when they gained strength, they stayed in survival mode. And so God said, because of this, it's as if he's saying, I'm, I'm pulling back on my grace. Now, I need us to realize that God, even in this situation, has a purpose. He's not just judging them. He's wanting to call something out of them. Wanting to call them forth to something. Look over in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. These are the nations the Lord left to do what, church? To test all of those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Can I just ask you, think about this for a moment. Why would God want them to experience battle? Battle's hard. Battles are, people lose their lives in battle. Why would God want the Israelites to have to fight? Every time that they turned away from the Lord, served the Baal, served the other gods... When they broke covenant with God, there was an oppression that God sent upon them. This is the pattern over and over. Then they confessed their sins, they repented, and God gave them a deliverer, which means, guess what? They had to fight. You know what? Look at it this way. If we refuse to fight, if we just lay down, if we're so wearied, if we choose not to fight... The enemy will bring the fight to us. Do you see that here? Here they are. You know, we're, we're weary by all of the fighting of the Canaanites and the Emirates and all of these people. We'll make a business deal with them. You know, why get rid of them now? Let's just turn them into a prophet. There we go. P-R-O-F-I-T. Prophet. We'll take advantage. We'll, we'll turn this into a business. There we go. A slavery business. How about that? We'll make money off of them. But God said, you know what? You are going to follow their ways. And they became enculturated with the toxic culture of the peoples around them that they refused to fight and get rid of. Consequently, God allowed an enemy to rise up and God brought the fight to Israel. You want to avoid the fight? Then I'll bring the fight to you. Because there's something that God does, church, in the midst of a fight. And can I just tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I can almost guarantee you, you will experience some measure of that fight nearly every single day. I hope that doesn't sound wearying to you. That is the way of the kingdom of God. If we choose not to engage in this battle, God's going to say, 
One way or another, I'm going to get my people to fight, so I'll bring the battle to them if I need to. That's what he did to these Israelites. And then eventually they repented. God raised up a deliverer, led them into battle, into a fight. And then they, here's what happened. They saw, in that fight, they saw the power of God displayed. Here's what happens. Church, when you fight, when you realize, God, I can't win this battle, but there is nothing else that I can do. I have to fight now. And you will rise up out of that weariness, and as you fight, you will see God fighting for you. When, when you are, your back is up against the wall and you are seeing impossible odds before you and you are crying out to God in desperate prayer, that's when God acts. That's when God pours out his grace. And it's always more than enough. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. I mentioned this last week. I told you we would spend a little bit of time, just not then. I want to do that right now. I want to spend just a little bit of time in this. This is, this, is, this is a church, the Philadelphians, that had moved into survival mode. And God wasn't rebuking them. Actually, he did something. They responded, and God did something beautiful. Let's look at it. I'm not going to read very much of it. I'm, just gonna, I'm actually going to start with verse 8. And I'm going to read through verse 9. You ready? This is Jesus. He is dictating a letter through John. And he is writing to the church at Philadelphia. See, or excuse me, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'm going to read it just a little bit more literal in the Greek here. It says, you have little strength. Excuse me. Um, I place before you an open door that no one can close because you have little strength and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Why does God give them an open door? Whatever this open door is, we're going to investigate that in a moment. But why does God give them an open door? For three reasons. Number one, because they are weak. They're weary. Just like those Israelites during the times of the judges, they became weak and wearied. But when they did have strength, they did not respond the way God had asked them to. So here are the Philadelphians. Why is God opening this door? Because they're weak. Because they have held on to his word. They have not denied the truth of God's word. See, if they denied the truth, if they just simply said, we reject Jesus, the persecutions would stop. But because they were living for Jesus and there was something radical about how they chose to live, we're going to look at in a moment, that they received all of this persecution and they were weary. But God, but Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to, I'm going to do something amazing for you. I'm going to open this door for you. And it is a revelation of God's grace. It is that element of God's grace that God gives to them. Because they're weak, they have held on to his word, and they have not denied his name. Here is something that we need to realize as we investigate this. 
with every letter. Remember, I think it was about a year and a half ago or so, we went through the book of Revelation. Was it a year and a half? I think it was a year and a half ago. We went through the first several chapters of Revelation. I actually preached on this passage. And we discovered that every letter always begins with some element of John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Some element of it. In, in this, it's keys. And they're talking about the keys of death and Hades. That key represents authority. We see that key again, or we see a key again at the end of Revelation. Won't get into that. But here's this key. It represents authority. Who has the key? Jesus has the key. And it is a key with regard to death and Hades. It is with regard to now a door. See, you can close and lock a door. But if you lock it, no one can open it. No one can... Sh- can Shut it because you have the key. If they shut it, it's not locked. People can open it. So Jesus is the only one who can close and lock that door and open it, and no one can shut it and lock it. He has that authority. See, this is then the open door to his kingdom. But I want us to see something here. It isn't just a promise for eternal life and entering into the kingdom of God for the Philadelphians. Look at the very next verse. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but we, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. You see, the open door is first given to the Philadelphians, but also realized now through the Philadelphians, and we're going to see how that happened, another door is opened to this synagogue of Satan. Now, how do we know this? Because it says that some of those people who claim to be Jews, but they're only Jews on the outward. They're not Jews on the... The Jew on the inward... The, the, the descendants of Abraham, heirs of those promises given to Abraham, they would have responded to the gospel and followed the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. But they're not. Instead, they persecuted the Christian Philadelphians. So why would some of those people from that synagogue of Satan, you know, Jesus is not mincing his words. He just... he. He's playing a spade here, and it's a spade. And he just calls them, and he says, they're of a synagogue of Satan. Some of them are going to come, and they're going to fall at your feet, and they are going to declare this truth. Jesus has loved you. Can I ask you, how on earth that would happen? Can I suggest some things? Number one That the Philadelphians, even in their weariness, they managed to continue to speak truth. How else are those people, those Jews of the synagogue of Satan, how else would they even know who's a Christian? How would they know? I mean, there's no church building per se. They didn't have church buildings back then. 
but they would fall at the feet of Christians. Why? Because that Christian, even in their weariness, still proclaimed Jesus, still looked for opportunities. They didn't They didn't turn inward. In their weariness, they refused to give up in the fight. Consequently, they continued to still speak about Jesus, and I'm going to suggest they lived for Jesus. Because how would they, or why would they fall, these people who were the synagogue of Satan, why would they fall at their feet and say, Jesus has loved you. The Jesus that we spoke against, the Jesus that we persecuted, the Jesus that as Jews we crucified, that Jesus has loved you. How would they know that? There's no New Testament Bible that they're going to thumb through the pages. Yep, see, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me. No. Maybe they heard a song But I'm going to venture that they saw with their very eyes how Jesus loved them and took care of them. As a matter of fact, it says in the very next verse that God's blessing would be upon them and that God would keep them from the hour of trial that was going to come upon the whole world. And no, I don't believe that this is some secret rapture that, this, that Jesus is referring to 2,000 or more years in the future. This applies to the Philadelphians. There was going to be a trial in this day. We're probably looking, I would venture to say, in the early 90s AD. Probably under the reign of Domitian, who was an avid persecutor of Christianity, that this persecution would sweep and God, the, the, God would look at me, you know, you've been through enough. I'm going to spare you. Why? Because even when you were weak, even when you could have slipped in survival mode, even when you could have just felt like throwing in the spiritual towel, you didn't. You, you held fast to my word. You continued to pursue me and proclaim me and you lived for me and people saw it. The way you lived impacted the people around you to the degree that whatever happened, whatever event or situation happened in these various people's lives, they came to this conclusion, Jesus is real and he loves these people. Church, can I just tell you that your testimony of the things that God has done for you is so powerful to the world. So powerful. God has blessed me with many opportunities. I wish there would be more. But I guess if I'm wishing that there would be more, that means that somehow I have to get in trouble. Jesus has to deliver me to create this testimony, right? I'm not really excited about the process. But I'm excited about having those testimonies. And God gives these, 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 these blessings, these testimonies happen because you fight. When you are fighting, when you are fighting the enemy, you are now just as weak as you are. Just a mustard seed of faith is all God asks. God begins to fight for you. God begins to do amazing things. And in this case... Not just an unbeliever, he was more than likely a persecutor of the Christians, comes to you and he says, 
I'm just, I'm just totally convinced Jesus loves you. He's heard it. He has seen it with his own eyes, and he's convinced Jesus is real. This open door was first given to the Philadelphians because they were weak, did not deny the word, and did not deny the name of Jesus. And then God, through the Philadelphians, opened another door to the synagogue of Satan. And some of them came to Christ. That's what happens. When we are feeling weak, he gives us this open door. He says, you know what? Instead of being so focused on yourself, can you still speak about me? Can you still seize little opportunities here and there and let Jesus, let me shine through you? Can you allow, Can I'm going to give you grace. Can you lay hold of that grace? And can you rise up and fight with the little strength that you have? Because if you do, let me show you what amazing things that I can do. A mustard seed of faith. Remember when Jesus, the disciples come to Jesus and they couldn't cast the demon out of a boy. And they say, Jesus, tell us, why couldn't we do it? And he says this. He says, because all you needed was a, was a faith the size of a mustard seed. But at least at that moment, to cast out that demon, they didn't even have that. What we do find when Jesus comes down from the mountain, is that the disciples are arguing with the Pharisees. And I can only imagine in this argument, they were completely robbed of faith. Completely robbed. I mean, we, we just went town to town casting demons out, and now what? I don't get this. And somehow they were robbed of faith. That is one of the characteristics when we slip into survival mode, church. Praise God for the disciples. It was just that one little incident. But a grain of mustard seed, that's all you would need to cast a demon out. Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples before this. And he says, you know what? I am give, or I have given to you authority over all the power of the enemy. Authority over all the power of the enemy. That means as we encounter the kingdom of darkness in our evangelism, in reaching out, and as the enemy brings his fight to us, God does something supernatural called the fruit of the Spirit. That fruit of the Spirit is supernatural. It is not the work of Mike Curtis. It is truly the work of the Spirit in me. The work of the Spirit in you, fruit of the Spirit. The works of the Spirit are then turned outward to reach, to minister, to serve, to love others. And by doing that, pointing them to Jesus and making the teaching of Jesus attractive to them. Church, I need to tell you, the world desperately needs, and I would even say wants, what you have in Christ. They want it. They're just not willing to make that sacrifice and die to self to follow Jesus. But the more you share more, the, the, the gospel, the more you live for the kingdom openly to them, God is going to start opening 
the, the, the door to the kingdom to them too, through you. When Barnabas came to Antioch, an interesting passage, it says, when he was, I mean, they had, the gospel had just been preached from the Jews to the Gentiles, and so many of the Gentiles were coming to Christ. Paul goes up there, he wants to help them as much as he can, teach them the word, and it says when he gets there, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. When Paul is on his second missionary journey, you're going to remember this. He goes to Philippi. He gets wearied by a fortune teller, a woman who is demonized by a spirit, and he just turns around and he commands the demon to come out of her. The demon leaves, but see, she was a slave girl to her owners and they were using her for a profit and now she couldn't prophesy and so they were going to lose money and so they had a complaint no fair we just lost our income because these guys cast a demon out of my our servant girl and so they threw paul and silas into prison it's late at night And there they are just on the floor just saying, God, we don't understand what's going on. We're just so tired of all of this persecution. They were singing worship songs late into the night. And I cannot help but wonder the content of those songs that impacted the jailer. Because here's what happened. God did a suddenly. An earthquake hits Philippi. It's so ferocious that it opens the prison cells and the jailer, he's ready to kill himself because if they escaped, it's his life on the line. And Paul is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, buddy, hey, put the knife away. We're still here. Everything's good. And the jailer realizes, oh my goodness, this is a God thing. They've been worshiping Jesus, and it's as if God responds with this overwhelm, my words, grace in, on their behalf and opens prison doors and thereby opens the door to the kingdom to the people there, especially the jailer. Here's what the jailer says. It says, he came and he fell at their feet, just like the synagogue of Satan would do to the Philadelphia. They, he came, fell at, the, at, at Paul's and Silas's feet, and he asks this, what must I do to be saved? Wow. Isn't that amazing? I, I would love opportunities like that. But you know what? That means if I want opportunities like that, then that means I have to get whipped and beaten, thrown into jail for who knows how long, but the truth is it it was less than a day. But we don't, they didn't know that. And then God, in our surrendered obedience to him, God does it suddenly. 
So if you want to have testimonies like that, expect the fight to come to you. It's going to do that. But how are you going to respond, church? The people in Bokim, it was called that because it means weepers. Because it says they cried out to the Lord and wept. And there is just this sense of repentance that comes upon them as they weep before God. Now, I'm going to say that it wasn't just an emotional event because the last phrase, last sentence says, and they offered sacrifices to God. God, look what we have done. We have sinned against you. And there's a broken and contrite heart. Church, in our survival mode, God will extend an open door, not just to you, but through you. Which means you're going to have to start thinking outwardly and not just about your problems. You're going to have to be proactive and not reactive. You may still feel weak and weary, but God can still use you. Can I just tell you that Personally, I've been amazed, and I can testify that God has probably used me more in my moments of weakness than in my moments of strength. Times in which, like in, in college, I would, just, I would be so tired because I'd gotten like six hours of sleep. I can handle six hours of sleep a little better now. I'm older. I guess I'm not as active. I don't need quite as much sleep. But you know what? Back then, I needed a lot more than six hours. And I'm going in, and I'm a, there's, there's an opportunity. I'm just saying, okay, God, here I'm, I'm at the, uh, their uh, community building. And I usually would eat lunch there and look for an opportunity to witness. And I can remember just saying, God, there's no way in the world. I'm just way too tired. Just find me a lone table. So I sit by myself, and a guy sits down next to me. Okay, Lord. He begins to ask me questions, and I begin to then respond with questions. And there's something inside of me that just says, I need to care for this guy. And he began to share with me some things that God had done in his life, but he was not a believer. And I called him. I said, that is God doing that in your life. Hello. And I shared the gospel with him. I never saw him again. One day I pray, if I can recognize him because it's been so many years, but one day I pray I'd be able to see him in heaven. That maybe if not at that moment, another moment in time, another person came and called him to Jesus. Maybe another called him to Jesus. And this person got saved. That would be so awesome. But you know what? Paul and, Barnabas, Paul and Silas, they responded in that moment of great need. Instead of whining and complaining and shrinking in and woe is me and I've just got so many problems. Help me, Jesus. I don't know what to do. You know, and just that whiny attitude. They just said, you know, we're going to worship God. We're going we're gonna to crush some serpent heads tonight, Okay. We're going to start exercising and walking in that authority that Jesus has given us. We're going to just keep doing this. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep moving forward. We're not giving up. We're not kowtowing to the devil's plans. We're going to crush some more serpent heads. And we're going to see the kingdom of God invade this, this place. And that's exactly what God did. 
You know, just this past Saturday, you know, Meredith was mentioning earlier, the, uh, or, or was it fright? Yeah, it was Saturday, and, and the worship team had prayed, and she had prayed, God, just bring back some of these people from our past, some of these young people who just, they left Powerline and just walked away from God, and the very next day, this young man, out of the blue, we have not heard from him in like, like 20 years, guys, almost, almost 20 years. And he starts texting back and forth. And it, Meredith shared the conversation with me. And I said, Meredith, are you sure he wasn't on drugs when he was texting you? Maybe he was. But a couple of days later, he begins to text her again saying, I think you're right. I think I need to just come to Jesus. If he was on drugs, he at least managed to hear something that she said. God, through my wife, opened a door. Church, are you tonight willing in your weariness, and I get that, I cannot tell you how many times I have felt so wearied, that instead of slipping into survival mode, can we just say, God, in this moment of weakness and weariness, use me. Use me. Because if we refuse to fight, because that's where God displays his grace in the midst of a fight. If we refuse to fight, God will bring the fight to us and we're going to need to do it anyway. So let's do it now, right? And as we do this, we now are privileged to see an outpouring of God's amazing grace as we step up in our weakness and say, Jesus, how can you use me today? Amen, church, for you. Father, I just ask that in our weakness, your grace would prove to be more than enough. Father, in our weariness, in this battle that we're having, whether or not we want to even just continue to follow hard after you, I just ask that we would stop right now, and consider these truths that we've heard tonight. And we would just surrender right now, just surrender. God, forgive me for in my weariness, I've just wanted to run. Forgive me for my false accusations against you. That somehow you have not loved me when you have. Forgive me, Father, for focusing so much on me. For turning to pleasures when I needed to turn to you. I was hurting. I was so wearied. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me for not seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. The church, the people at Bokeen wept. And it's okay if that happens. But let's build an altar tonight. 
Let's put our lives back on that, that altar as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And let's just say, Jesus, please. I am all in. Today, help me to deny self, take up my cross, and follow you. Spirit of God, just minister to us right now, please. Thank you. Where there are hurts, would you heal those hurts? Where there's anger, would you dispel the anger? Would you again show us pictures, remembrances of your love, clearly displayed in our life? Thank you.